like to approach a topic that, uh, based on conversations that I've had with so many different ones over the past several weeks, the Lord just began to lay this on my heart. And and I want to talk to you about some misbeliefs that you may have about yourself and confronting some of those misbeliefs about ourselves. There are a lot of people today that believe a lot of things about themselves that are just not true as it relates to the things of God in your life. And I'm going to ask that you would take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 4. The passage of Scripture that is very familiar to many of you. It's found in verse 23. And I'm reading from the New International Version. There are different versions which have slightly different words, but the theme of it is all the same. The Scripture says to us, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Lord, we've just had a great time of worshiping you. Father, like a dinner table that has been set, and the aroma of the fresh bread of the word that's in the oven, I now ask that you would deliver to each of us what we need. In Jesus' name, amen. My wife and I have conversations on a regular basis, and because she's a public school teacher and because I'm in ministry, there are certain times in our lives when there will be people that will say things to us just like they do to you that can be rather critical if taken in that way. And from time to time, we have this little saying with each other, and perhaps you do as well, as saying, you know what? Don't let it reach your heart. Sometimes there are things that are said to you that you just need to keep on the surface. Don't let it get to your heart. Sometimes you need to have things that kind of just roll off your back or you take it for what it's worth. Or people will say, don't take this personally, but... Ever had those conversations? And in the middle of that, you have to be very careful because the Lord begins to remind us that anything that reaches our heart has the potential to either benefit us or damage us. So we have within the Scripture this morning a verse that says, above all else, Guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Now, the word heart, as it refers to here from the Hebrew word, means actually means the inside or the kernel of a nut. It has to do with one's feelings. It has to do with one's will or even the intellect. In other words, if you could narrow down what this word means, when it says, above all else, guard your heart, above all else, guard the object that makes the decisions for your life. Keep that well pure. Don't let your heart get polluted. And in this we come to understand that God's work in our life, He always begins with the heart, and then He begins to work outward. The heart always comes first, because this speaks of the inner life, what the Lord wants to do. And He says, guard it, which is your personal responsibility. I want you to know something. God would not give you a responsibility if He didn't give you the tools needed to do the job. So you can know that He will help you in accomplishing the guarding of your heart. And He indicates to us that this is not optional. He's not speaking about a certain conviction. He is speaking here that this is something that we must do. And from time to time, we as children of God get a little bit lax as it comes to the issues of our heart. And he says it's something that we are to begin immediately. And if you'll also notice the term, it says above all else, or in in other versions, it says with all diligence. In other words, 
Give it all the attention that you can give it. Some people have weapons in their home that they guard their homes with. And I discovered when we were at the fair this year, everybody's getting out of the cars and we all have those little buttons on our keys. We're walking. We just kind of point over our shoulder and beep, beep, beep. We would never think of going to the fair or to the mall and not locking the doors of our car. It becomes second nature to us. Because there are things that we will guard and we are, there are things that are valuable to us. And yet the Lord says above all of these things that your heart, the decision maker, the will of man inside of you needs to be guarded. Too many Christians try to live their Christian life with no effort. And we don't understand that we are in a constant warfare that will require much of your spiritual energy. Which is why even in the old times in the battlefield they had shields and, and uh, armor that guarded their hearts. Why is it that the Lord is so interested? And I would tell you today it's because the heart, your heart is the object of God's greatest interest in you. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, the Scripture declares this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, when the Lord begins to do a work within us and within His people and within His church, it always starts with a heart transplant. Some of you today could give testimony of the way things used to be in your life and how God so radically changed you because He took those things which were hardened within your life and He transplanted a new nature in you and He gave you a new heart that was no longer of stone but was of His nature. And He begins to want to work things from the inside out within your life. Luke chapter 6, verse 45 says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. There are a lot of people that can put on a good show, but if you spend enough time with them, their mouth will betray them. Their attitudes, their belief system, their values will sooner or later come out of their mouth because you can't hide what is hidden within your heart. And today what I want to confront with you and to talk to you about is there are some heart issues that we face that are not necessarily attacks from the outside, but are inside jobs that we allow to be created by the way that we feel about ourselves from time to time. There are some things that are going on in your life that are there not because the enemy is attacking, but because you don't seem to want to create in your own heart a protection and you've allowed thoughts in. Sometimes you can be your own worst enemy. Before we enter into communion this morning, I want to bring you to a place of confronting some misbeliefs in your life in light of the Word of God. And I want to confront them believing that God will help you address them by faith. And the five this morning I want to address are, number one, that I am unlovable. Number two, that I am unforgivable. Number three, that I am unchangeable. Fourth, that I am unblessable. And fifth, that I am unusable. Those are listed in your bulletin in one of the flaps if you would like to keep notes. The first one being that I am unlovable. How many conversations with you that you have had with other people? And you begin to share with them about your faith in Jesus Christ. And the first thing they say is, oh, Jesus could never love me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the kind of person that I am. 
And they begin to try to remove themselves from the grace of Jesus Christ because they feel as if they are unlovable. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 states this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, God died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated His own love for us in this, that while we were still stinkers, in the Dement Version, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want that to settle into your heart. Before you had anything that was of worth in your life to give to Him, of which we all have He looked at you and valued you as lovable before there was anything righteous. Dr. Larry Crabb, a psychologist, once told of someone who had a 23-year-old, a 24-year-old son who had strayed away from God and strayed away from the family, told his parents, listen, I don't want your faith began to hang around with people that were heavily into lives of drugs and sex and one night at two o'clock in the morning he got a call that said your son has been arrested and he's at the police station would you please immediately come down so that you can get him out the father got up got dressed rushed to the police station as he arrived at the police station he went to the front desk and told them of the call and the officer looked down and he said i'm sorry there was nobody from here that called you After doing a little checking, they discovered that it was a prank call that had brought him to the station. And So in the middle of the night, as he's driving back, he knew where his son was living. And as he drove by the house, he noticed that the front door was partway open. So he stopped the car and he got out and he walked into the house. And as he walked into the house, the the room was filled with the aroma of drugs. And there were people laying all over the place. He looked around and his eyes adjusted a little bit. He saw laying on a couch his son sleeping man stood there in that room looking around he decided to step over the people that were just wasted on the floor and he walks over and he stood over his son for just a moment and then seeing that he was sound asleep he just reached down kissed him on the head and he turned around and he walked back out of the house got into his car and broke down in tears just began to weep as to what was going on in his son's life and he just began to ask that God would somehow encapsulate his son and keep him that his soul would not be required of him before he could come back to him. Eight months later, he received a call on the phone and it was his son. He says, Dad, he said, do you think that you and I could get together for lunch? He said, I'd like to talk to you. And Dad said, absolutely, we can do that. And so they met and when they got together, his son looked at him and said, I just wanted you to be the first one to know that I have come back to Jesus Christ. And he said, Dad, you want to know why I came back to Christ? And his father said, yes. He said, because that night when you came into my house, I wasn't asleep. He said, and you stepped over me and you stood there. And he says, I was waiting for you to unload on me. And he said, you leaned over and you kissed me. And you walked out of the house. He said, and I thought, you know what? If you can love me when I am so unlovable, then there must be something to the love of Jesus. 
for each of us. And some try to earn the love of God by doing things for Him and for others. And until you know that God loves you just where you are at, none of the other things you ever do will ever bring you satisfaction. Grace makes the word deserve a terrible word. Think about that for a minute. Grace makes the word deserve. You can work all of your life trying to deserve the love of Jesus Christ and you will never reach it. But the grace of God that is given to us freely when He loved us when we were unlovable can reach our heart. It's the grace that will help you enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit when you feel you're unlovable. Secondly, I would like you to think about those who feel that they are unforgivable. Colossians chapter 2. Verses 13 through 14, it said, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. There's one little line in there that I'd like you to focus on for just a minute when it said, He forgave us all our sins. He forgave us all our sins. For those that would say, you know, if you only knew me, you would know that I am the exemption. I'm the exception to this particular scripture. Because the enemy constantly whispers in your ear all of the nature of the world that you're like, But you have to understand that the price that God paid covered it all. He covered it all. He covered it all. In the ancient times when a debt was being paid, the person to whom the debt was owed when it was paid would go to the house of the individual who owed the debt. And it had been written out on on some sort of paper. And the way that it was would nail it to the doorpost of the person who had had the debt so that not only the person, whenever they walked in and out of the door, would know that the debt was paid, but that all of the other neighbors who had walked by their house would see by those things nailed to the door that they have paid their debt. It was a way to let everybody know you had good credit by what was nailed to the doorpost. And so when the apostle begins to list to this people of his listeners at that time that this is what Christ had done, it meant something to this, that Jesus Christ on the cross through His hands through His feet, through the blood that He shed, nailed all of our sin to the cross. Those that have been committed by Old Testament saints up to that time, those that were present, and those of us that are alive today, it has been nailed to the cross. And today you must choose whether or not you will allow the forgiveness of Christ to be effective within your life. The problem that so many of us have is that We let our feelings fight against the truth of the Word. But, Pastor, you don't know how I feel. I feel so guilty. I feel so this. I feel so that. I want you to know something. The difference in living by feelings and faith is who you're going to believe. Who are you going to believe? Do you believe that you can believe your feelings over the Word of God, or will you stand firm and say, as a person of faith, I'm going to take what the Word of God says and I'm going to plant it in my life and I am going to live by the truth of this and my feelings will be secondary to the truth of God. So many feel inadequate. But today you have to make a decision about what you will believe. Your feelings 
often reinforce your misbelief. And there's a difference between bad guilt and holy conviction. The difference is that bad guilt forces you to feel bad about yourself and that you're never worthy. Conviction brings you to a place of encountering the cross of Jesus Christ where that when you get up, you're brand new in Him. Conviction brings you to Jesus. Guilt brings you to your knees. Shame. So to be free at your heart level, you have to make some decisions about God's truth. Sometimes your complete healing in this area will be when you finally nail the debt that others owe you to the door. Say, I'm no longer going to worry about that. And let me tell you this. Your feelings, if you live by faith in the Word of God and you do the right thing and you confront these things within your life, your feelings will in time begin to correct themselves in light of the Word of God. Your feelings in time, as you continue to do the right thing, will reinforce your belief in the Word. Will confront the fact that you are unforgivable. Thirdly, there are those that say, I am unchangeable. I've tried and tried and tried. I don't seem to be able to change. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Scripture declares, Therefore, if any one of you is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is passed away, gone, died. doesn't matter what version. It's not there anymore. And behold, the new has come. I love the fact that it said the old has passed away, the old is gone. In other words, there is a definitive difference between who you were and who you are when Christ Jesus comes into your life. I've often said it before, the actual translation of this would be that you are a new species. In other words, it used to be that this earth was your home, but now, having Christ come into your life, you now belong to a heavenly kingdom. There's something new in your spirit. There's something new in your mind. A new heart has been given to you, and we are motivated by different things than we were before. To think that you are unchangeable is a lie, and it would make the cross of no effect. In Romans 6, 11, it says, In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When you face the temptations to go back into the old places that you used to go and live that old way, just remind yourself, no, that person died. Those desires died. I'm coming against this temptation in the name of Jesus. I belong to you, Lord, and you told me that there would be no temptation, that I could not find an escape if I would just listen to you. So, Lord, show me the way to get out of here. And begin to let those things go. 1 Corinthians chapter 118 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the cross splits the world. You either look at the cross and think that that's pathetic... Or you look at the cross and you think, that's powerful. Our world has only two choices to look at it this way. You either look at it and say, it's absolutely pathetic, or you look at it and you say, that is the power that is changing my life. And if you look at it as the power of God, then you are being saved. And this means that you have been plucked from the perishing crowd and set on a one-way street to heaven. It's one way or the other. You're perishing or you're being saved day by day. David Berkowitz, otherwise known as the son of Sam, 
was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for brutally murdering six people and wounding several others. The first time that I was driving Cindy back to her house from college when I was this Midwest kid, it's the middle of the night and we got lost in Queens. And she made the statement, Oh, this is, this is where the son of Sam kills people. It was in the late 70s. This farm kid was already a nervous wreck. That's just what I needed. David Berkowitz was an evil man. After he was put in prison, in his testimony, he says that every night he would lay in bed and the evil thoughts would just crowd his mind and he would lay there tormented by the demonic spirits that had been such a part of his life since he was a boy. He said, they came in as, as a young boy when I fell in love with horror films and began to follow through with some of those things in my life. He said, but there was another prisoner that was nearby that I would see from time to time. And one day he came up to him and he goes, listen, David, he goes, I feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to tell you that Jesus loves you. That Jesus is not done with you and that he has a plan for your life, even though it may be in prison. But he wants to use you and he wants you to yield to him and he can change your life. And David said, I looked at him and said, what? What? Jesus loves me. And he said, this inmate would not give up. Every time he would see me, he'd go, David, Jesus loves you. He's got a plan for you. And one day that inmate gave him a little pocket Bible. And he said, that night I opened it up and I read Psalm 18, 6. It said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. And he said, and in that moment of time, that verse came alive to me. And he began to think, Lord, if in my distress through the years of demonic oppression and the things that I've done and the people I've hurt, if you can hear my voice, then somehow, oh God, touch me right now if you're real. And he said it was like an oil plug that my foot got pulled out and the hatred and everything that had built up in him his whole life poured out on the floor and God in that instant in his cell began to pour into him new life and changed him right then at midnight in his cell all by himself. He said, Lord, is it possible that you can really love somebody who is unlovable? And God gloriously saved him. And today, David Berkowitz is one of the finest prison preachers. In fact, he works alongside the chaplain there. And I have been told by those that have known him and seen him that he is one of the most outstanding worship leaders they've ever seen. Because nobody is But I'm unblessable. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, the Scripture indicates, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to the oppressed set free, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, as you look at this particular passage of Scripture, you would see that the category of people that most of the time feel that they are unblessable are listed here under what the Lord says is my call as I go into ministry, as Jesus was initiating his, his ministry. He declares it with the announcement that I'm come to proclaim good news to the poor. In other words, the poor who feel like they are unblessable, I've come to bless. 
liberty to the captives. Those of you who've been captured in different things, I've come to set you free. I've come to bless you. Sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, the year of the Lord's favor or the Lord's blessing upon the lives of those who'd never experienced the blessing of God. Ephesians 1.3 speaks of praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, from the time that you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you begin to have an account in heaven that by the way that you live and honor God, there are things being deposited in your account in heaven. He is blessing you with things that for eternity you will have to worship Him and enjoy. You're saying, well, that's great. I must be doing pretty good in heaven. I'm not seeing much of it here on earth. Well, let me give you another scripture. Psalm chapter 37, verse 25. Because I have been young and now I am old, and yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. You see, there is a passage of Scripture which the Lord indicates to each of us as His children. I know who you are. I know what I've got in store for you. I will come into your life and I will bring blessings to you both in heaven and on earth. There is this aspect of sometimes that we have to confront in our own lives that we are unblessable. Well, that only happens to other people. And sometimes we don't even get a chance to rejoice with other people because the first question that comes out of our mouth is when we hear others being blessed is, of course it's somebody else. Because it's never me. And I want you to know today that you are not unblessable. No matter what situation you are in, remember that God knows our needs and is there for us. Do you know that in all of the Scripture, the only thing that God will allow to overtake you is His blessing? In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 2, it said, If you fully obey the Lord, your God, and carefully follow all of His commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and these blessings will come upon you and accompany you, or in other words, that word can also mean, and overtake you, if you obey the Lord your God. In other words, if you are living a life of obedience and you're working to please the Lord, you cannot live without His blessings because it will overtake you. His blessings will overtake you as you're living in obedience to God. So if you're living a life and you're saying, I'm not very blessed, then the first thing I would do is come to the Lord and say, what is it, Lord, that's standing as an obstacle between me and your blessing? What do I need to have removed from my life so that the windows of heaven can be opened and poured into my life those things which not only I need but that you will bless me and I want you to know something you begin to ask God what the obstacles are and he will begin to tell you he always answers the prayers of his people when we come to him in that way so praise him say but pastor I'm in the middle of a storm I've heard a song called praise him in the storm Nothing makes the enemy more upset than when he is bringing storms into your life for you to just stop and say, Lord, I praise you. I bring you glory. Lifting up your name. I will not be defeated. I belong to you. I'm in the palm of your hand. You're aware of everything that's going on in my life. I lay it before you. I am yours, O Lord, and I call you my God, and you call me your child. I will not yield to the things going on around me. But I will praise you. Lastly, there are those that say, I'm The first time that I went to Alaska, a number of years ago, I had a 
team of teenagers, and we went up to Nome, Alaska. And there's there's one road that goes there. In fact, probably most of you have heard of the Iditarod, where they follow the trail. And there, there's a last hundred mile stretch before you get to Nome, where the pavement ends, and it just becomes somewhat dirt and gravelly. And and once it starts to rain, and it, it gets really really rough there. And there was a really interesting sign there that said this. Be careful which rut you choose because you're going to be in it for the next hundred miles. Life is like that. We get used to things. We develop our habits. We develop our routines. We get to a point where just because we've not allowed ourselves to be used of God in certain ways, we begin to think it's because we are unusable. And that there's nothing special that the Lord can do within my life. Some of you have been ruts of life for so long that you've just gotten comfortable in the rut. Moses felt like he was unusable. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mount of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. If ever there was someone who felt like they had lived a life that made them unusable to God or that they had blown their chance, it was Moses. God often shows up when we are engaged in the ordinary things of our life. And what happened to Moses happened on a seemingly ordinary day. It was just one of over 14,000 other days living in the rut in the desert. Moses had settled down. Perhaps he'd come to terms with the idea that he would never be the deliverer of his people. And day in and day out, he carried out his duties as a shepherd and as a father and as a husband. And Moses had been doing this for 40 years, and it's highly improbable that he believed anything was ever going to change. But that is the way you think when you're unusable. That's the way you think when you think that your time has passed you by or that God can't do anything with you or that when you think you don't have any talents or don't think you have any abilities or you constantly compare yourself to others. You let those thoughts settle into your heart. Today the Lord wants you to confront them in your spirit that you have let into the depths of the well of your heart the idea that God can't. In the common, ordinary, everyday circumstances of our lives, God occasionally does something altogether extraordinary. Sometimes He burns the bush. In our world today, God may be trying to get your attention. Sometimes it comes with the disruption of your routine. Sometimes there's an accident or an illness, an unwelcome change in circumstance. Sometimes you lose a job. But God will often get your attention by causing some change to the day-to-day rut that you're living in. And you have to step back and you're confronted with what's going on here. This changes things. I like the rut. At least I knew what was next. Sometimes you call them coincidences, but these are not chance events. Not when you're a child of God, they're not their divine appointments. 
there. God's way of tapping you on the shoulder so that you'll take notice of what He has to say. And He can do so in less dramatic ways. Sometimes just as you're reading a scripture that you've read again and again and you know what it says, but somehow the light of the Holy Spirit enlightens it to you in a brand new way and you know God is speaking. Sometimes it's listening to a sermon. But whatever it is when God speaks, it's not random. It's God arranged. Because God has a plan for your life. And throughout our very ordinary lives, we have these extraordinary moments in which God seeks to communicate with us. And perhaps today God's been trying to get your attention. Perhaps He's been trying to tap you on the shoulder and you're saying, Leave me alone! I'm not interested in what you have to say. Or tap on somebody else's shoulder. I'm in this rut. I like it and I'm unusable. There are a lot of things that other people can do far better than me, Lord, so just go find one of them. Or maybe you're saying, Lord, don't tap me on the shoulder because you don't know my failures in the past. I tried to do something once and it didn't work out. I took that to mean that you don't ever want me to try anything again. Because I'm just going to back out. And I'm going to sit over here and I'm going to listen to the misbelief in my own spirit that I am unusable. But there's an interesting dialogue that takes place at the burning bush that I want to call your attention to. God addresses Moses' insecurities of himself and his past in verse 6 when he says, I am the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And it says, and Moses hid his face. What was taking place here is that God was saying, I want you to look back for a moment. I know all of your fears, Moses. I know your insecurities. But I want you to deal with the old memories that perhaps had not been dealt with with years for him. And the experience tore open old wounds of forgotten fears because he began to recognize as the names that God listed that he had been with were not perfect men. They were flawed individuals. And yet God looked back and said, I use flawed individuals. I can use you. And the moment that you begin to think, oh, I'm flawed, I'm unusable, the Lord says, that was what you were before. I've come now to put my hand upon you so that I can use you today. Isn't that great? You and I qualify for service just as we are, failures and all. Had it not been for the grace of God, not one of us would have ever accomplished anything that would have lasted. So I ask you this morning, what's it going to take to get your attention? Worship team, please come. What will finally persuade you to stop doing what you're doing long enough to consider that God may be trying to tell you that whatever's happening in your life is because He's tapping you on the shoulder? What's it going to take for you before you say, I'm going to check this out. I'm going to stop long enough to see what God might be trying to say to me. Sometimes you have to guard your heart from your own insecurities. Sometimes you have to preach to yourself. You know the best sermons you ever heard will be the ones you preach to yourself? Because you'll talk to you like nobody else will talk to you. The heart of Christianity is a life of intimacy with Jesus Christ. God wants you to deal with some misbeliefs that you may have allowed to start to believe about yourself. That you are unlovable. That you are unforgivable that you are unchangeable, unblessable, and unusable. And He wants you to know today that those are lies. lies. I can think of no better way in our lives to 
confront some of the misbeliefs that we have had about ourselves rather than standing at the crossroads of the cross. Because it's in that setting and in that scene that we are confronted with an overwhelming love of a Savior that would do anything to reach you. I had a conversation with my daughter last night. My son-in-law is a physician for the Special Forces and one of his troops was injured very, very severely in Afghanistan. And my son-in-law was flown to meet him when he got off the plane in Washington, D.C. And he's known this man for a while. And the testimony of this man was that he says, I've almost died three times. And he said, during that, even in my unconsciousness, Jesus spoke to me. And he says, all that he can say to people as they're coming into his room is you have faith? Are you a person of faith? If not, can I tell you about what I've experienced? My daughter was just sharing overwhelmed and overjoyed at the power of God to reach us. He loves us so much. He can do anything to reach us. And when we are confronted with His love, it puts everything about the way that we feel in a perspective under the covering of His love and grace. So let the words never be on your lips again, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm like. You don't know how I am. Because if you belong to Christ, His nature has been given to you. 